1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, <clears throat> excuse me, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. And if you flip over the page, we'll be continuing our reading today from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the all measure of all the fullness of God. Thanks, Ellen. So today we're going to talk about Jesus and how he makes us think about rainbows. Not really. I think I'm going to use that video at, at John's like employee evaluation. This is what your kids said when you asked them these questions. These were apparently the best ones. Um, so uh, we've been We've been going through this book in the Bible, the book of Ephesians, for a year, basically. And um, this is the last week we're going to be going through it. And so I want to focus on the message of the book as a whole, or what I want to talk about today is the burden of the book of Ephesians. So um, the, one of the, if there's one verse in the Bible, most people— know that in some translations has the word burden in it. It's this verse where Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, come to me all of you who are heavy laden or heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, right? And that's because um, human beings uh, carry lots of burdens, and some of them are um, very heavy, and they're, so the, the word translated heavy laden is kind of like a weight that isn't being carried properly, so th you can think about um, the three burdens people can carry this way. Um, imagine that you have—you're carrying, like, a small backpack, okay? Your shoes do not fit you properly, and you have to walk to a place where you're going to deliver this parcel, and it's going to change the world, okay? Like you have something very important. So you're carrying a certain amount of weight. That weight is worth carrying. Sometimes you just got to carry weight. You have a burden in your heart to do something. You're carrying this to a place to accomplish something. And your shoes don't fit properly, and they really hurt. You understand? What's the thing that's going to be on your mind the most, probably? Your shoes. <laughs> right? If you ever—I I used to lead backpacking trips, and whether or not things fit was by far the most important thing. Right? Um, if your boots fit and they feel good, you can carry like three times as much. But if they don't—if you got, if you got a stone in your shoe, you can't carry 10 pounds. You can't even walk. And you see, the, the point of Jesus saying, if you're heavy laden, give, give him your burdens, and he'll give you rest. He, what, he, what he's not saying is that you aren't going to accomplish anything else the rest of your life. Do you understand? What he's saying is, is that there are certain burdens that human beings carry that are destroying them. They're not productive. 
They're not helpful. You don't get anything for them. They just destroy you. And some of them are sort of productive, but we're doing it in completely the wrong way. Right? It's like carrying things with your teeth. You know, we're like, you know, you're like, well, I have to carry these scissors, so I should carry them like this, pointed at my chest while I run. You know, so you're like, you can carry them in a different way. So, for example, for thousands of years, women have been carrying water on their heads from water sources, often fairly far from their homes. Fairly recently, um, a couple different uh, organizations have started selling these things called water hippos, which are like basically wheels you can fill with like six days worth of water, and then you just kind of push them along, right? There was, there was one picture of like this lady pushing that, and another lady with one on her head kind of looking at her like, I want one of those. <laughs> Because it, it not only, like, makes it so you have to do this trek fewer times, but it just takes all the weight off of your cervical spine, which can wreak havoc later in your life, right? It's just, it's just help, helpful because that—the burden of water needs to be carried or everybody dies, but there are better ways to carry it. Um, and there are some burdens that you don't need to carry at all that Jesus wants to take away, like guilt, inferiority, all senses of personal insufficiency— the self-doubt and the frustration and the fear that come from feeling like you don't deserve anything or you deserve hell or that you are wrong. And the, the answer is just like, well, I'm just not going to feel that. Isn't ever going to work. Do you understand? Like just saying, well, I don't have to live up to anybody's expectations, so I'm not going to feel bad about anything. That's never going to help you. All you're doing is you're taking thoughts that come into your consciousness that deserve to be there and putting them in places they don't go. Because they're coming from places you don't want to deal with. One of the, Billy Graham was kind of famous for saying, he, he said, listen, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he went on to say, and he didn't say it quite like this because he was very dignified. But he said something like, you don't even live up to your own standards. What makes you think you've lived up to God's standards? I mean, the standards are God's standards, but you haven't lived up to your standards. Now, on one level, you can be like, well, I could set lower standards, you know? Um, but, th that, but that's not really the issue, right? And you can be like, well, that's not very spiritual, Nick, to say living up to your own standards, because the Bible says God's standards. That's true, the Bible does say God's standards. But see, here's the reason why you haven't lived up to your own standards. Because you can't not know that you're made in God's image. And so in some, in some ways, in a— kind of interesting spiritual way, you do only ever have to live up to your own standards. That which you know you must do because you're an image bearer. And there is a conscience inside of you that haunts you that is from God, that is based in the image of God, and it is the standard of God, and it's already inside of you. And if you will listen to it and pay attention to it and hear it, it's basically the same thing as the standard of God. We just need the Bible to keep reminding us that which we keep trying to push out. And that, our failure to live up to that, is a burden that is crushing our spiritual cervical spine. And it's a burden that Jesus does not want you to carry. He literally died to unburden you of that burden. And it's critical. There's no way to live and enjoy the life God has given you or live with the purpose for which God has given it to you if you bear that burden. Because it's like the stone in your shoe. You can't walk. You can't go. It inhibits you from any kind of real movement personally. And you got to get that cleared up. You got to stop. Stop where you're going. You got to take off the boots. You got to do whatever needs to be done so that you can walk and use the strength God has given you. Because what it's doing is it's undermining all of your real human capacity. All of your focus, all of your intention, all of your energy, all of your thought, all of your life is getting used up on something that Jesus literally died to unburden you from, right? But that's not the only kind of human burden, right? God, Jesus' intention for not, us is not, he died for your sins, so you don't have to think about them anymore. So now you can just like float in the afternoon thermals, you know, like a, like a milkweed seed in late fall. Just like no responsibility, no cares, no passion, no interests— Right? The, the idea is, is that once you are unburdened from the burdens that crush you, there are good, meaningful human burdens that you will see in your life and that you know you already have that you are meant to live out. And these are the same burdens that God has. Right? The, the same burdens that God has, you are meant to have as his image bearer. And one of them is a, is a burden of passion. Like a desire to accomplish certain things that are inherently good. 
that your life would matter and mean something, that you would contribute to the lives of others, that you would bring glory to God, that you would, you would fulfill the capacity for which you were made, that you would do the things that you were best at, that you would, like, that you would care about the right things and move those things forward, right? And so you can see this in, um, in the work of the Apostle Paul, where he's writing to the Galatians and things are not going well at that church. And he says to them, he says, My dear children, for whom I began in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And because he's been talking to them really difficult, he's like, listen, I have such a burden for you guys. It's like I'm delivering a child. Do you understand? Paul is not repenting of that burden. He embraces that burden. A burden that is as painful as having a baby, which I have not personally experienced, but I have watched four times. And it does not look easy. And you see, that burden Paul embraces, he believes is right, he doesn't repent of, he doesn't say that he shouldn't have it. It's fundamental to who he is. And every person is supposed to have those kinds of burdens, a burden that you have for your friends and what you, your care for them and what you hope for them, what you hope you will be in their life and how their life will be better because you're their friend and they can count on you and you will only do good to them and you'll never do evil to them. And because you are their friend, their life is going to be better and generations of their offspring will be better because you were in their life and you should have a burden for that. Right? Same thing for every parent, every husband and wife, every student, every researcher, every garbage collector, every chef, every person who does anything, right? If you do it with the image of God in the productivity he's created for you, for his glory, you should have a burden and a passion to do that thing, right? But there's also the burden of just the fact that like, Sometimes you got to carry stuff. Not all of life is easy. And Jesus never says all of life is easy. Right? I mean, the, the, the greatest artistic cliche in the American church, besides Thomas Kincaid paintings, is the that poem, Footprints, you know what I'm talking about? She's like, my child, when there was only one set of footprints, I was carrying you. And she's like, oh, that's nice, right? Look it up. It's, in, it's on The Simpsons. Okay. And— the, but the, that idea that, like, Jesus burdens himself with carrying us is emotionally true, but it literally says in the Bible, we're supposed to do that for each other. How does Jesus carry that guy in the footprints in the sand, blah, 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 biblically speaking? He did it through his—he's supposed to have done it through his church, his body, who is his fullness that he fills in every way, right? The, and so Paul explicitly says this in Galatians. He's like, listen— it's your job to burden yourself with other people. When Jesus says, listen, listen, I'm here if you're heavy laden and burdened. I want to take that burden off of you. He doesn't mean your wife <laughs> or your problem child or your difficult class, right? Or your uncertain future. That's not what he means. He means the weight of the destructive things like self-doubt and the burden of guilt and sin that are very real, that are taking you away from the other real burdens that you're supposed to bear like God bears them. God has passions, and God carries weight towards productive things, and those are his burdens, and those are good, and those are the kind of burdens where you get to the end of the day and you're really glad for that day. Like if you hike 10 miles with something in your shoe, and you get to the end of it, all you care about is that it stopped, and you're not glad that you went through that day. That was terrible. But if you get to the end of a good day of progress, where you worked really hard, you get to the end of the day, and you tend to feel in your heart, that was a good day. Those—that difference is fundamental to our being, and our existence, and our salvation, and our identity. And so it matters what our burdens are. It matters whether we should be carrying them at all. It matters what we're burdened about for the productivity and the direction of our lives. And it matters what we have freed ourselves up from so we could carry something else and take responsibility for something else and to carry what God has given us to carry, which is normally— the difficulties of others out of love. Right? The main thing we are supposed to carry is we're supposed to help other people carry their difficulties. 
in a way that doesn't ruin their moral responsibility in fulfilling the destiny of their own lives, but that still takes enough of the weight so that they're not crushed by it. Do you understand? Now, so therefore, if in all these things— because the apostle—remember, the apostle is teaching us about marriage and family, and how we should talk, and the theological truths of the gospel, and how the, how different races, languages, and peoples can be reconciled to each other, and how we should raise our children, and how we should deal with hierarchies, even to the point of dealing with slavery, and, and on and on, and how we should deal with spiritual warfare, and all these things. But at all, what are all these things united by? What is his real burden? Why is he burdened so much to teach us about marriage and children and submission and responsibility and spiritual warfare and the reconciliation of races and nations and peoples? What is the burden that creates that? Right? And I think that the way the apostle reveals his burden, which is his way of revealing the Holy Spirit's burden for his people, is in the two prayers in the book of Ephesians. There's two places where he prays, and he, he tries to make really clear what he believes is God's burden for all people through the gospel, okay? And it's, it's, it's fairly simple, but it's, if it's not the center of our burden for ourselves and for others, then our burden—we're not sharing God's burden. Do you understand? That's a very important thing. If you want to live by the burden of passion God wants to give you, and not the burden of something you're not supposed to carry. And if you want to live your life carrying the right burdens so that all of the energy that you expend, all of the life that you expend is productive and beautiful and good, you have to be aligned with the main burden of God for people. Do you understand? That's incredibly important. It's fairly simple, okay? It's simply this. God wants you to know him in his fullness. Right, that's—I know that sounds like—you're like, that's it? Yeah. Simple doesn't mean simple, right? That God wants you to know him in his fullness. That means he's not particularly interested in how high you go in your career. He's not particularly interested in your physical health. There's all these kinds of things that he cares about, but he cares about as means to other ends. The main thing he cares about, the main burden that God has, is for you to know him and for you to know him in his fullness— and for you to participate in him helping other people know him and know him in his fullness. Now, the reason why that's important is because it's very easy for us to think that um, the goal is something else, right? So, for example, sometimes people will say, you know, what God really wants is for you to repent and believe and, and trust Jesus in simple faith, right? And that's not really— that's not really God's goal. God's goal is not just your simple faith in trusting Jesus for your sins, right? God's goal is for you to know him in all his fullness. He wants to take knowing as far as it can possibly go, right? Which is a very dangerous idea. What it means is, is that you, you aren't going to be able to circumscribe how far God can go and how far he can't go. Nobody really knows how far this goes. In fact, we know it goes farther than we can know because it literally says in that verse, right, in Ephesians 3, that he wants us to know something that surpasses knowledge. How far is this going to go? Well, a lot further than we can possibly know because it's going to go further than—it's going to surpass knowledge. Right? It says in chapter 1 that he wants us to understand the incomparable riches of God's mercy or his grace. Well— that's an interesting adjective. Incomparable, right? Like, it literally means there's no analogy. So, how big is the riches of God's grace towards you? Well, I, there's nothing I can compare it to. So that's big, but it's— how do you grasp something that you don't know in and of itself and that you can't compare to anything else? So it's, it's very dangerous to recognize that what God wants for you is something you can't possibly understand right now. You don't know how far it's going to go. You don't know where it's going to lead you. You don't know what it's going to demand of you. Do you understand? Now, let's break this burden down into two parts quickly. The, the first is, is that— um, Sorry, so in each of these, you can see how he talks about 
his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's the point. And to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. As you work through these passages, you can see this is the point. The point is fullness. The point, now the question then becomes, what does that mean? Right? So the the first thing it means is that God wants to give you the spiritual strength to see his glory. Right? He wants to give you the spiritual strength to see his glory. Now, this, there's a couple reasons why this is important. The first is, is that it's important to recognize that the thing Paul's burdened to pray for all Christians about, because it's what the Spirit wants to do in and for us, is that he wants to give us strength. That's not a metaphor that people often associate with their spirituality. But that's precisely what the Bible says here. It says that what needs to happen is, we, is that the Holy Spirit, or God's Spirit, needs to affect us so that we become in much stronger in a certain kind of way so that we'd be able to understand and see what it means to know God. Right? So here it says, he's like, I keep asking—in chapter 1, he says, I keep asking God to give you all the spirit of revelation, right? And then he says, I want you to see these three things, that you may understand the joy, may know the hope—I'm sorry, the hope to which you were called, the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then for the next two verses, he goes over all the ways in which Jesus has demonstrated his power over everything. Why? So that every Christian would understand the incomparably great power, because of those three, it is that power we are most likely to underestimate, most likely to misunderstand, and most likely to believe does not apply to us. And so what the apostle is burdened to unload on you is to say, You have no idea how much power there is in Jesus. How much power he has unleashed. How much power through him God offers. But listen, you need to understand that his power is not mainly to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not mainly to overcome your burdens and problems exactly the way you want. The main way this power has been unleashed is so that it would make you stronger so that you would be able to grasp and know through an experience of revelation, what it really means to know God. Right? That you'd be strengthened. This is, and it says explicitly that in, in his prayer in chapter 3. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, right, so out of an incredible amount of resources, what is God going to do? That he would strengthen you with power. So he intentionally uses two strength words, right? Why? Because he's trying to emphasize this. That he would strengthen you with power through his Spirit, in your inner being. Now, part of the reason that that's important, and as you go on, he, he does this more, that you'd have the power to grasp. Now, it's important to recognize the three parts of this, that it's spiritual strength to know, right? So this isn't this is some kind of mere physical strength. It is specifically a spiritual strength. Do you understand? So it's not, it's not to be confused with like, how much you bench press, or how strong you are, or how immune you are to sickness, or anything like that. It is a spiritual strength. It is a strength that is as opposed to weakness. So why—so think about it this way. Why don't we know God in all his fullness? No, seriously. Why don't you think you already know God in all his fullness? If you don't, hypothetically. Right? You see, the answer you think is probably the same answer I think in in the flesh, which is this. Because God doesn't reveal himself more. That's why. I mean, if if God was really serious about us knowing him in all his fullness, then he would reveal more so we could easily see more, and then we would know him. That's why. Like— We've got a, an old book, and we've got a story about Jesus from 2,000 years ago, and we, we, we come, we talk about it. It's very helpful. But like, if God, if God was 100% interested in all of his cosmic and glorious power, that I would know him better, <laughs> he would do more, right? What's the assumption here? The assumption here is the reason that we don't know him better is because of our weaknesses. That's the assumption. It's not his lack of revelation. It's not his lack of interest. It's not his lack of speaking and showing himself. It's not his lack of demonstrating his care and love. It's not his lack of demonstrating his glories. It is our weakness. Our sin 
which causes us to be self-deluded, which makes us not want to see certain things because we don't want to see certain things about ourselves. But when we close off our ability to see those things about ourselves, we can't see things around us. When we can't see things around us, we can't see things that God has spoken and shown about himself around us. And so scripture can say that every day creation pours forth speech about God. Right? Like, I mean, think about me getting to like the 58th minute of a normal sermon, and you're like, oh my gosh, can this guy stop talking, right? And what the Bible says is that I'm not even getting close to the average set of stars that are outside of our house every night that we pay no attention to. Or the fundamentally miraculous thing, like, you are probably sitting next to a creature, the complexity and glory of which you can't even fathom, and are paying no attention to right now. Like, have, did you come into the service, sit down next to another human being, become aware that you are sitting next to an image bearer of God that is more complex than anything all of the accumulated wisdom of human beings has ever been able to create, and burst into tears? Did that happen to you? Why didn't that happen to you? Right? There's this, there's this great part of um, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton where he says— I think God may be able to do the same thing over and over and over again, not because he's so old, but because he's never sinned. He's never sinned, and he's still young at heart. That like, that like a child can rejoice, can go to the seashore and rejoice in, in 50,000 waves, one right after another, and not get tired of it when you get tired of the fourth one. And Jesus says, it's not because the child isn't mature. It's because you sinned and grew old. And in your heart, you're so cynical towards the wonders of creation, you can't see anything. And because you can't see anything, you feel so empty inside, and nothing really pleases you. And so all that's left is the pleasures of your neurology or your vanity. And he's like, but, but the wonder is everywhere. And the reason we can't see it is our weakness. And so Paul's burden, which is the Spirit's burden, is— Dear God, would you, in the glorious riches of your power, give strength to these humans who've put their trust in Jesus and awaken and enlighten the eyes of their heart so that they could see you. Because you have not been negligent in showing yourself and in speaking to them. Your word and your actions and your truth and your beauty is everywhere. And we are so weak that we can't see it. And if you don't strengthen us, we never will. And therefore, the strength is given for knowledge, for revelation, for insight, for the capacity to grasp something, right? I love that in chapter 3 where he says that you'd be strengthened with the power to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God. And to know the thing that surpasses knowledge. Right. I said that, um, that he gives us the spiritual strength to see his glory. The reason I say glory is not to use a religious word that we don't understand to make an important point that we desperately need. The reason I say glory is because when you start talking about knowing God, people immediately start thinking of the metaphor of how they know other people. And they start thinking about, well, I talk with them, and they're right there. And they say, what do you mean knowing God? What does that even mean? And there's lots of ways Christians have talked about how this means, and there, there, there are numerous ways to talk about it. The book of Ephesians talks about the glory of God eight times. Seven of them are either in these two prayers or immediately adjacent to these two prayers. So when Paul prays about his burden for the Ephesian people, in those prayers, he's talking about the glory of God. Now, that may sound like a word that doesn't do anything for you, but human beings are captured by beauty, not logic, right? Even, even something that's like so cool that it's true, something still happens to that logic where you believe that the logic is so, is so, is so interesting, it's somehow beautiful. Does that make sense? And so, what's beauty, right? And so, the idea that God is glorious is the idea that God is in his person is magnificent. That in, in basically every facet of understanding God in the way he really is, if you could see it with any kind of clarity and strength, 
with that spirit of revelation so that the eyes of your heart would really be enlightened to see it the way it is, what you would see was something so magnificently beautiful that it would capture your heart in a way that you would know it, but you would also be expanded by it, and you'd be able to see what's next. So, for example, in the Reformed tradition— out of the Protestant Reformation, the, the idea of seeing the glory of God and God displaying his glories is fundamental to how God has spoken and shown himself to us. That is, that everything there is that, about God has this inherent, heart-capturing, magnificent beauty. And so as God shows each piece of it, each one is a bite-sized part that a human might have the capacity to take in and is a snapshot that by itself is seeable and digestible, but that leads you to more and leads you to more and leads you to more. Right? So one example of this would be, do you, do you guys see the advertisements about the, um, about the new phones that are going to be able to take pictures in the dark and like you can, they look like they're the middle of the day? Right? Apparently, the, the new Google phone, the new Samsung phone, and the whatever, I'm sure the iPhone or whatever, they're all going to be able to like, you can walk in. It's not, now not pitch dark pretty dang dark. And it'll look like you took a picture in the middle of the day, right? So, um, what does that mean? Like, how is that accomplished? And the, so, okay, the way it's technologically accomplished is this, is when you take the picture, right, it actually takes like 60 pictures, right, on like all these different settings. And then what it does is it takes all those pictures and it like looks for these different markers so that it can lighten it. And then it, it like takes little pieces of each one and it, it splices them all together. And then it brings in artificial intelligence to change all these Photoshop basics, basically Photoshop settings, to lighten the picture. So that what normally used to take a Photoshop expert a while to do, the phone just automatically does in a particular setting. Does that make sense? Now think about that. In very low light, where you can see almost nothing, if you take a lot of pictures and you splice them all together and then you insert intelligence, you can get a clear-as-day picture of what's really there. Do you see what I'm saying here? It is true that in our sinful weakness, we see the glories of God as though they're in an incredibly dim light. Not pitch blackness. If you take one of these new cameras and you like close the storage unit and it's pitch black and you take a picture, you know what the picture looks like? A black square. Like, like, you need, you need like 35 lumens, right? Three luxes, or whatever the heck that means. Right? It's 35 lumens at 3.6 meters at a 62-degree angle is actually what it means, okay? So, so you need a little bit of light, right? But if you have a little bit of light, and you look at what's there, and you look at it, 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 and you start putting together all the little bits that you see, it begins to lighten the, the overall picture so you can see more and more what's really completely there. Does that make sense? And then if you add intelligence to splice together what you're seeing, to put together what is there, you can see even more. And you see, when, when Paul says, God, give them the strength to see the height and breadth and depth of your love, what he's, say, what he's saying is, he's like, draw, the, draw them in, your believers in. Because they're going to have to know you in a, in a different way at this point than they would normally think about knowing people. But in some ways, it's not that different. Right? Th think about, like, a young man asks this girl out that he thinks is pretty but barely knows, right? Now, one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to go out with her a couple times, and she's going to reveal new snapshots about herself, right? And he's going to be like, that is not an interesting picture, <laughs> right? And then he might not ask her out again. Or he might go out with her, and she is physically not going to change at all, right? I mean, she'll change her clothes, but that's probably right? And then she keeps saying to him little things about herself, Right? What's he do she doing? She's giving these little snapshots. And what's he doing? He's taking these little snapshots, and he's trying to put them together into some kind of mosaic that makes him feel like he thinks he has a picture of her. Does he have a picture of her? I don't know. It depends on how many snapshots and how much intelligence was actually used to put them all together. <laughs> right? But if you think about it that way, that's all any of us have about anyone. We— we have these interactional things that give us little pieces of what we think we know about people, and then we use our intelligence to make them into this mosaic that tells us a story of what we think we know about them and who we think they are. And in that sense, the Spirit is doing the same thing for you getting to know God. 
In every way, the Spirit gives you the strength to know him more. You pursue him, and you're looking for his revelation. You're looking for his wisdom and knowledge. You're looking for what he would show about himself. And you're, you have eyes to see it. And so you're, you're squinting into the low light, but you can see something in that low light. And you put that together with this, with that, with this, with that. And God begins to bring it together into a mosaic and to lighten it. And you begin to see more and more of the glory of God, his graciousness and his riches, and his power exerted in Christ, exerted in your life, exerted through the church, exerted in creation, exerted in redemption. And you, as it comes together, you get a better picture of who he is, and you begin to see how magnificent that picture is, and you begin to see the glory. And the more glory you see, the more it motivates you to see more. Until you are filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul knows that that process feeds on itself, and he's praying that the Spirit would empower in people to get them going. Does that make sense? And that's what he's praying for you. That, I believe that is not only the apostles or mine, I believe that is the Holy Spirit's burden for you. Okay, now, it is also true, if you look closely at this, these passages, that that fullness only comes through faith in Christ and a love-rooted church. Okay, this is a point that is not often brought up when looking at these passages. I think it's really critical. Okay. God only gives that spiritual strength that I just spoke of in a single primary way. Now, I say the word primary because I do believe that if you get converted in a gulag and you're hearing about the gospel through taps of a cup on the wall— that without being part of a local church, God can grow you in a wisdom and knowledge of himself that is glorious, okay? However, that does not diminish at all how God tells us to receive the gifts that he gives us. And the, the only way we are being told to receive this increased knowing is in relationship to faith in Christ and a church rooted in love. Right? And the church rooted in love part is not, um, it's not, elect, it's not an elective. It's not optional. Let me, let me try to point this out. If you've got a Bible open, you can follow with me. I'm not going to read all these. So if you look at Ephesians 10, 3, 10 to 12. So this is this passage where the apostle— So the way Ephesians is laid out, the first four chapters, is the apostle says something. He preaches a, the, a theological truth. And then he says how he was personally involved in it in relationship to the Ephesians themselves. And then he prays for them. So that's probably kind of a good sermon. Here's what's true. Here's how it matters for us, how we were involved in it. And now let's pray. Does that make sense? And so he says, so Ephesians 3 is all a how he was involved in what he says in Ephesians 2. And he gets to the very end of it. He says this. His, that's God's, intent was that now— through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, that's Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. See what he's saying? Now, he's not talking about you or you, you right now, okay? He's talking about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What that means in the context of the book of Ephesians is all non-human conscious intelligences. That's angels, demons, God himself, and whatever else is out there that we don't know about that can watch what's happening. He's saying this is the way they find out about the manifold wisdom of God. That is, you could, if you imagine a diamond with 100,000 facets to it, and each facet demonstrates something of the wisdom of God. And if you were to look at the whole thing, and it all shone at the same time, and you saw them all at the same time, you would see the multifaceted, glorious, magnificent wisdom of God. You would know God. And what you would know in knowing God is the height and breadth and depth of his love, as well as everything else and how it plays out in everything in the universe. And, he's, and how does he say this happens? He says, this is made known—remember that prepositions are everything— through the church. 
through the church. And then he says it's done through the church according to what he accomplished in Christ Jesus. So not just any church, not just when the church does whatever it wants, Now when the church lives like the world, now when the church lives according to its own flesh and sin and selfish desires and pride and all the seven deadly sins instead of the Ten Commandments or something like that. But through the church, in accordance to what he accomplished in Christ Jesus. When what he accomplished in Christ Jesus, when we have real faith in that, gets played out and lived out through the church, it happens. And as far as we can tell in Scripture, it is the only time it happens. Right? Look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So he's just about to start this prayer for the Ephesians, and he says this, For this reason, meaning for all this theology I just said, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, on one level, you'd be like, well, he knows about them. He knows they're great. And so he prays for them. Yes, in the absence of the other passages, maybe. But you see, in each case, he says, these are the two component parts that are necessary for the revelation of the fullness to happen. They both have to be there. There has to be faith in Jesus, and there has to be a love for all the saints. There has to be a church that is seeking to be loving like Jesus. Right? Chapter 3 says it this way. 3 verses 14 and 18. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So notice, right? He's talking about the church, both dead and alive, right? In heaven and on earth. And from whom it derives its name, it derives its name from heaven, namely the one from heaven, the Christ, right? And he says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, So that—so what are the things he wants? Why is he praying? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, if you—if God so empowers by his Spirit that Christ really dwells in your heart through faith, you really put your full trust in Jesus, and he dwells there. You didn't just accept him. He dwells there. You believe in him. And two, in your real life, in the church, in this family of which heaven, but in both heaven and earth, and from Christ it derives its name. That is the church. That if in this group of people, you have a love for all the saints, and you are being in your real life rooted and established in love, both power words, both strength words, to be rooted means it's harder to pull you out. And, and established is the same word for foundation. Dug deep into the ground so it can't be moved. As you become more rooted and foundationally established in love, in practice, in the church with real people you don't like, who sin against you, who talk behind your back, who are struggling themselves to walk out the calling of Jesus. As you cope with them and deal with them as they have faith in Jesus and you have faith in Jesus. And your imperfect is an understatement. And you are laboring in a knowledge of Christ and through the power of the Spirit to be his body with Christ at the head and sorting it out in that context alone. Do you have any chance of seeing how high the love of Christ is? And only in that context do you have any prayer of ever experiencing how wide the love of Christ is. And only in that context can you ever notice and find out and experience in your life so that you know it in a way that surpasses knowledge how deep is the love of Christ. It's only in the lab of the difficulty of carrying the burden of the passions of Christ and the burden shared by Jesus for the people of Christ and carrying their burdens and carrying God's burden, will you ever really experience the rooted love that produces the revelation of the fullness of the glory that will, yeah, that will change the human heart and will open up your emotional capacity and will give you a sense of purpose and will help you throw off the burdens you weren't meant to carry and help you walk in a way that is 
filled with beauty and not just strength. It will be—we're not used to associating this word with beauty, but we're supposed to. It will be holy because it will be godly, and God is full of the beauty of glory. There's no shortcut to that. There is no—listen, can I just tell you, there have been a number of human generations of people, especially since the increase of individualism in America. Okay, we live in a culture. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter what racial group you're part of. It doesn't matter what heart language you speak. You have been baking in the soil of individualism most of your life. And you want a way— to believe in Jesus and be okay with God that does not involve the difficulty of relationships you can't control. Do you understand? That's why we want a really big government that does stuff for us and little consumption relationships where we can get exactly what we want. And very few complicating institutions that we have to be a part of in the middle like families, and churches, and clubs. But there isn't any way that Jesus has given us primarily, unless the situation is profoundly strange, which is not the case for any of you, to experience this knowing without having Jesus dwell in our hearts through faith. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you must become one to experience this. It is a spiritual, supernatural action done by the very power of God himself that cannot be done any other way. You have to yourself tell God that you are wrong about your sin, that he's always been right, he's given you Christ as a solution to that, and you want that solution, and you want Christ to dwell in your hearts in your heart, and you have to tell him that, and it will happen, and you will experience a miracle that will not feel probably like anything. For some of you, might have a lot of emotions. For other people, it won't feel like anything happened, but something important will happen. That is, you will be forgiven, and Christ will dwell in your heart through faith, and that is necessary to ever experience the glory. And secondly, you must be part of the church, and I don't mean hypothetically, and I don't mean with one church for three months and then another church for three months and then another church for three months or I'll go there until that person offends me and then I'll do this. No, 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 no. You need to go to the church that offends you the most. You need to hang out with the people who you most dislike. When like people talk about you, you need to go talk to them about it. You know, like, you, like it, it is the hanging in there that makes the difference. You can't, you can't move all around and be rooted and established in love. That doesn't work. You're kidding yourself. You, there has to be a rootedness and an establishedness in love in order for you to be able to ever grasp the height and breadth and depth and the other adjective I keep forgetting about the love of Jesus. And you, listen, it's very important to recognize this, that is the great pleasure God gives you in exchange for letting go of the world. Do you understand? When you come to Jesus— you realize that you're going to die and everything you have is going to be burned to ashes and you're going to have nothing to show for your life and yourself and all of it is a vapor. And you give that up for the one thing and the one person who's eternal and he gives you something in this life in exchange for everything that you begin to treat like it's not yours forever. Because you may use a lot of that stuff that you think is yours to help carry the burdens of others. Right? Because you're going to become enormously generous with your life, and you're not going to treat your time and your privacy and your stuff like it's yours. So what do you get in exchange for that? And the answer is, you get the unending and unfathomable pleasure of the multifaceted beauties of God. That's what you get. That is your compensation before heaven. And you have to take hold of it. And you get it in little bits. And it keeps expanding, and it keeps doing more, and it keeps pushing further. And it is a great, uncalculable pleasure. 
And one of the worst things you can possibly do is to say that you're casting the world aside and enter into faith in Christ and not walk that out. And leave aside the great divine compensation of all you burned to ashes and then play around with kind of burning to ashes, but kind of holding on to the world. That's why the one burden, the one burden, is that God would give you the spiritual strength to know him. That's the burden. Is that your burden for yourself, really? If we looked at your calendar, and we looked at your YouTube history, and we looked at your, how you spend your money, and if, you look, if I looked at the things, if I could have a video control aspect of your mental life where you're daydreaming, and what is in your daydreams, and the things that you're shopping for, would there be, is there, where could I look in your life that there would be profound evidence that that is your one thing? And listen, you might be like, well, that's not a lot of evidence, Nick. Well, that's fine. That's why this faith is all about faith. Embrace it now. Today. Right now. I don't, I don't care how much time you've wasted, what you've cared about. Like, none of that matters. Jesus wants you now. He wants you today. And you're like, well, I don't know if I can keep doing it for even two weeks. That doesn't matter. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you turn to God. Today is the moment you turn to Him. This moment is the moment you turn to Him. Don't worry about whether or not you can sustain it. Don't worry about what you've done. None of that's relevant. What's relevant is right now. Right now. Turn to Him with all of it right now and ask for Him to give you the spiritual strength to grasp His beauty and His glory and for it to fill your heart with a new motivation and a love, and a pleasure right now. Tell God you want everything that promise is meant to give. And in comparison, nothing else. And then just take the next step. I could say a lot more, but you have to end somewhere. Remember that the whole metaphor of the book of Ephesians is that he is the head and we are the body. Right? Faith in Christ and a love-filled church together in one body. That's always been the goal, the purpose, and the burden. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for all it says. But we pray at this moment, right now, Holy Spirit, you would give us the spiritual power to open our hearts and awaken in our souls and to receive the fullness. Help us not to settle for anything short of the fullness you want to give us. And I pray that you would give us the motivation and the direction and the hope. Fill us with that hope in the riches and the power that you've displayed in Christ. Amen.